What? Did you ever get it? No. Never? No, never. You're not, one of those. I was not careful at all. Are you one of those? Yeah, I'm one of those. I never got it. Yeah. Oh, you had it. No, you had it. You just uh, didn't know. Maybe, yeah. I could tell by the look. Can I, I could take tell a by picture of you guys in Stacey's book? I could be tell so excited. by the look. Yes. Where's Wait, her book? Whose book? Stacey Denick-Smith. Where's her book? Oh, uh, what's Machiavelli book? for Women. Machiavelli for it? Women. Where is it? Right next to Henry Kessinger. Mm. Or right. the Giants. I don't know why I put my headphones for this. <laughs> I got nervous. I got nervous. I had to cover up. We're gonna do a we're gonna do a book special for Mary, a Monday night thing like what we did with. Uh, is it out yet? Oh yeah, the Bill Gross. It book. comes out the fifteenth. I want to say. Okay. That's so we'll party. have her on a week later. By the way, true story. I said this on the podcast. You laughed. I wasn't kidding. Robert Pattinson in Batman looks like a young Bill Gross. <laughs> yes, he does. Google right. it. I said. That's perfect because he I don't seems sort of evil, but might be kind of good. I said. <laughs> I said that uh, Willem Dafoe should play. Bill Gross in the This book. doesn't look like a much more handsome young Bill Gross. Well, aren't what, there pictures what is, of Bill Gross from the 70s? Young, yeah. yeah. So show me. It's got like a mustache. Put up a shot. Alright, terrific. Fine. Young. Yeah, it's a good idea. Um, I gotta say my favorite do you know, thing. Do you know Mary Childs? Yeah, I go to a book party next week. Oh, you are going? Are you guys going? I didn't get the invite. Um, but I'm sure you did. You probably went to spam. Maybe. Uh, come on, come on, come on. What? what? I mean, no. Not really. Not yes, no. yes. Not why? Yes. The hair? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly the hair. Am I? Come on. Yeah. yeah. I, I said I, I much more handsome. I'm, 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 yeah, sure. <laughs> right. Anyway. Yeah, can we He would do a better job yes? than if I did it. But I, I got to say my favorite part of this whole thing is, uh, I guess, Bill Gross just published his memoirs or something. Outing himself as a psycho? Yeah, or whatever. But it's like the counter, the he counter was, story. He, some people are just so lucky. That was a great time for Bonds. Wait, his Bill career. Gross published his memoir? Good time yeah, Bill Bonds. Gross just published a book. Oh, he was trying to get ahead of this book. I think it was like he was waiting for it to come out so that he could have like his counter narrative. Did he participate in Mary's book? Do you know? Uh, I feel like I feel I don't like think so. he. I feel like he he might have. But she was spending a lot of time out there. Yeah, so she because she was dropping the bombs for Bloomberg when this was coming out with mm-hmm. Muhammad and him. But it's so much worse now. It's because now it's crossed oh, yeah, over. It's not even a finance doing story. This. He's like harassing his neighbors mm-hmm. and in lawsuits. Right. He, w- w- uh, he was allegedly dropping fart bombs sure. in his wife's house or something. In his wife's house? They said he was doing, yeah, he was doing weird shit. It's a little weird. It's a little weird. And he, a little yeah, and he's has some. It's like when you're a billionaire, no one's, you know, correcting you or telling you not to do whatever, so you well, just do Well, isn't he was always crazy and Mohammed Aliran was the one who kept him in line? I was always Team Mohammed. Always. Well, what they said was that you almost have to be a little bit crazy to have, like, the confidence to become the Bond King, but then it becomes a liability. How much was his skill and luck, though? Because Bonds just had their best ride ever over those 30 years. But in his I'm defense- I'm glad you asked that question, but weren't there thousands of people yes, who didn't become say, the Bond in his, King? De- in his defense, there was a lot of Bond managers that didn't become famous and the Yeah, best. but he was at a, he was a fun known for Bonds. All right, Ali, I agree, f*** that guy. And, and, and so he- <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm not impressed with him, but I'm just saying, like there can only be one Bond King at a time as per Highlander well, promotion, law. Self-promotion and ability to make yourself a Bond King is something, it's like becoming a money honey. I'm so glad you said that because actually, he was the only Bond manager 
that was doing those memos on a regular basis, mm. which took off. Yeah. You know, like Buffett wrote his letter. And yeah. There is something to that, which Michael and I would know a lot about. But And it's not nothing. It's not a trivial skill. It's not nothing. And communicating with the public. But it's not something. No, it is something. Communicating with the public is part of being a Bond king. Gunlock does it. Mm-hmm. It's not above writing a letter. His Twitter account is a dumpster fire. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jeff's? Yeah. yeah, but that means it's working if you're having that much of a reaction to it. That means it's good. I don't follow. I see, it, I see him retweet it from time to time. Why? What does he put it on there? You is it memes? Know. He's just, not doing memes. No, it's just, it's just not, my, not my thing. Wait, what are you drinking out of, a, out of the shot glass? What is that? Comos. Oh. All right. All right, guys. Welcome back. Does everybody's, everybody's headphones sound good? Everyone's in position? Yeah. Five. Everyone's sounding four. Good Everyone's good, Duncan? Yeah. Very yeah, you're sounding good. It's All right. feeling low energy in here. Oh Turn it up. Oh I think- <laughs> Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by FTX US, one of the largest crypto companies in the US. It's the safe, regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets. You might have heard of FTX from their partnerships with Tom Brady, overrated, just kidding, Steph Curry, or their recent Big E commercial at the Super Bowl with Larry David. With FTX, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. There are no ACH transaction fees, no withdrawal fees. You could also use the FTX app to buy your favorite NFTs with no gas fees. No gas fees, how about that? Supporting both the Ethereum and Solana blockchains. And here's, here's a good one. Duncan, you know I'm a fan of dollar cost averaging especially with something as volatile as crypto, you can do that. The FTX app has automated investing where users can take a little bit of money from each month, pull it from their bank account, dollar cost average right into your favorite crypto. To learn more, hit the link in the description and download the FTX app today in minutes and use referral code COMPOUND to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. All right, Allison's here. Sam is here, fan favorites. Third you time? Guys, Third time? No, this is two for you. In this incarnation. Yeah. You've, I mean, you've been on the channel a lot. Yeah. And yeah, what about you? This is three for me. Oh, it's two. Uh, I don't three. know. And Sam brought gifts. Do you see that I now have, I don't know if you noticed, but I now have sounds. I, didn't, I don't think I had sounds last time you were here. Did oh, I? yeah. Oh, no, that's interesting. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So <laughs> I <laughs> actually, loves it. this is about to be like 40% more expensive. Why? Because it's a product that comes in a can, in a bottle, and everything's getting more expensive. Right, and then you know, rice and grains. And ethanol. I was. I just learned that ethanol is like alcohol, or something. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a chemist. Right. <laughs> you just learned this. Yeah, I just learned it. Okay. So what we have here is ju- soju. Sh- sh- soju, and and the company is Jinro. Okay. And Jinro is like king the, of soju, like, either the number one or number two. Like is Jinro the company that was in Lost in Translation? No, that was Suntory. Um, Suntory, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, close, close. Uh, all right, we're gonna hit. We're gonna hit that. Uh, I'm so glad we have you guys here today. 
Let's first talk about um, especially Allison. Especially Allison. No, I I feel like you guys are the right are the right people for the right moment in time because what's going on right now has stock market ramifications, obviously. But a lot of this stuff is above my pay grade as somebody who's not an economist, obviously. I have opinions, which sometimes is all that counts. But Allison, you've got expertise. And Sam, I know you're reading a lot of what the sell side has to say about the implications of everything. So the first thing I wanted to get into was just this idea that really almost nothing else matters other than Russia right now, with good reason. It feels as though companies are announcing things. There's a reaction in the stock market for a few hours, and then that fades, and we get back into like, okay, Russia, prime time, this is everything. Uh, what's the most surprising thing, Allison, I'll start with you. What's the most surprising thing about the conflict? Maybe not that it happened, but what aspect of it or, or do you think you're most surprised by? Well, this is less economic, but just how it sort of brought everyone together, because I didn't think anything would. Or I thought we'd gotten pretty indifferent to global conflicts that didn't that weren't directly happening to us. So I think everyone coming together and being so united on this definitely surprised me. So Putin, yeah, I mean, Putin's gift like, to, Putin's even gift to like, the world is togetherness. Yeah, I mean, you would have thought that you know the coronavirus pandemic would have yeah. brought everybody together, but it yeah. ended up being divisive. Drove a wedge between us. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I agree. Who's been brought together though? Are you saying countries or people? Um, Almost everyone. Every, everyone. I think like Republicans we, and Democrats, except for Tucker Carlson. Some, I mean, we're about to pass a bipartisan bailout or sort of aid package, and I feel like we're hearing less like let's let's interrogate our past and like look at everything bad we've done because I think our mission in the world seems a little bit more um, apparent. And also, as I said, our relationships with NATO. Like, I think I was talking to someone. Uh, actually, it was Ian Bremmer like uh, a month ago where I asked him what the- Not to brag, we talked to him too recently. I saw. Yeah. He was, that was a great show. And I asked him, you know, what do you think the odds are that NATO is still going to be a thing in 10 years? And I can't remember what he said, but the probability was greater than even, but still non-trivial, maybe not. And now I have no doubt NATO is going to be around for 10 years. Uh, is NATO partly, is the idea of NATO partly at fault for this? Not that we want to blame the victim. But maybe it would have been better for the people running uh, Ukraine, not Zelensky, but just people for decades, not to have been fixated on this idea of joining NATO. Like maybe maybe things would have been calmer or no. this would have happened either way. I mean, I'm not a political scientist. This isn't my expertise. But I right. did go to Russia shortly after Crimea. And I got the sense that Putin really wants to, you know, get the Soviet Union back together. And I, you know, I know from living in Eastern Europe in the 90s that a lot of Eastern European countries aspire to be more like Europe. Yeah. So whether or not there's an institution they could join, just they would have had an affinity to not be part of this old Soviet Union, be more part of Europe. And he wouldn't have stood for that, whether or not there's an institution or not. Right. So, so uh, Sam, most of the strategists that I read, and I read probably not as many as you, but but a lot of them, it's a lot of this is what happened during the last 10 conflicts. Right. What else do they really have to go by? Um, you know, I think that's a good starting point. And everyone just sort of seems to say that, oh, well, you know, you look at these 50 different conflicts and then it's either 10 days or 100 days. The economy bounces back, market bounces back. Right, right. But they're not really thinking about, like, you know, the fundamentals, like, that's responsible for that. Because, like, you know, of course, with every conflict, the economic backdrop where it starts from is always different. Right. So it's yes. like it's one thing if, like the market's been crashing for, you know, a year and then some conflict happens and then, you know, a couple of days later the market rallies. Well, maybe there was some other things happening before 
um, you know, the particular. Right. The conflict is never the only variable that's affecting stocks and bonds at that time. Right. But, you know, I, I, you know, the, the thing that's kind of crazy that, that, um, you know, everyone always sort of like dances around, like, you know, the, the ultra worst case scenarios that, uh, you know, how do you prepare for stuff like that? Um, you know, it's, I I don't know if there's really an answer. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, there, there, there are those sort of like the super worst case scenarios where, you know, none of this matters anymore, right? Like finance. Well, that's the whole thing. If you're like writing sell side research for Merrill Lynch and they're like, what would the Dow Jones do in the worst case scenario? It's like, you ain't going to care about the Dow Jones in the worst case scenario. But, you know, I think something that, you know, we don't, that's actually sort of like being forgotten already is what the world went through with the COVID pandemic. And that's still happening, yeah. right? You know, you look at all these geopolitical events and it's like, this happened, that happened, this many people died, you know, these people were upset about whatever. It's like 900,000 Americans have died in the last two years. And that's right. like- 50, More than any war. Yeah, it's like 50 times Pearl Harbor. It's 50 times, you know, 9-11. And it's still happening. Right. Like, there are going to be more people dying of COVID this week in the U.S. than 9-11 and Pearl Harbor combined. Right. This week. Yeah, yeah. Does that desensitize us to the images that we're seeing on TV of like, I think they blew up a maternity ward last night. Are we just like, yeah, death is now in our face every minute. We can we can deal with so. this. I think that's one of the reasons that Ukraine's having such a big impact on people is because, you know, anyway, we might be less sensitive to people dying disease. I mean, violence still has a special mm-hmm. resonance. It's it's different. It's different, and it's metropolitan cities. Like this could be this could be Queens. We were driving down the LIE the other day, and I said to Josh, like, imagine just an airplane, like a fighter pilot, flying over the LIE. Well, I mean, listen, this happened, you know, like twenty years ago. You know, nine eleven. Like this, ha- you know like, we were di- attacked on U.S. soil. Yeah, and it was three miles from here. You know what's different also about this conflict versus Crimea and. You know, I know there was an incursion into Warsaw in the early 80s and there was shit with Budapest. Like I know Russia has been doing this pretty much since the beginning of the Cold War and never stopped. But this time, every man, woman and child has a a video camera that they are highly accustomed to pulling out. Like so fast that when their child smiles, they have video rolling. So now you really have the first urban – like area conflict, a city where like millions of people are capable of filming it constantly and uploading it to social media. We've never really had an experience like that. Right. And I I think to Allison's point, that is galvanizing more sentiment toward, you know, Ukraine from everybody and uniting people maybe because we're all watching the same shit and it's horrible. Yeah. And, and it seems like things are happening a lot faster too, right? It's like, you know, a day after or two days after the invasion, you know, the sanctions come down. The sanctions are sort of working two days later. There's more sanctions. And, I remember know, SWIFT was like such a big deal at the time. And I feel like that's sort of in the rearview mirror. Yeah, oh, it, it all week. happened within yeah. a week. Yeah. What do you think about that? Was that, that seemed to shock everybody that Germany was in and then that the United States was in on removing Russian banks from the SWIFT system. That seemed to have been like a line that nobody thought they would cross that quickly. Well, this is a really new territory because this is like economic warfare. Right. Usually this is it. People keep saying sanctions are about deterrence, but this is like full on economic warfare. Yeah. Which we're turning, I, off, the, we're turning off their economy. Yeah. Have we ever done anything like that before? I mean, I know we like, uh, you and know, everyone's got to some degree, to Germany during World War One and World War Two. But I mean, we were much less we globally that, integrated then. We did this to our allies right. once 100 years ago. Um, the onset of World War One in Europe. Mm-hmm. 
we knew that like 20% of the stock market was owned by Britain and it was backed by gold and they were going to want that gold back if they were going to get into the war and start sending troops to – so we shut down the New York Stock Exchange, which effectively kept all that gold trapped. If you couldn't sell stocks, then you couldn't access remuneration for those stocks. That word's tricky. So they, so they, uh, they shut down the New York Stock Exchange I think for six months. And six months? Something like that, yeah. And it's never happened before that or it's never happened since. But they couldn't afford to have all the gold sucked out of New York uh, and sent on steamer ships across the Atlantic to, to fight a war. That's kind of f***ed up that they did that. Six months? Like, yeah. What about shareholders who are American? I mean, how, long was, how long was World War I uh, stock market shut down? Do you know of him? And I think it was uh, nine months or something like that. Nine, nine months. 1914 or Never heard 15. this? No, it's true. that's crazy. I believe I think, you. I think June to December. So not nine months. I think it was less. But- uh, what do you guys make of, actually, before we get to this, I learned yesterday, I was talking to Sal Gilberti. He runs two cream funds, which are, I think like the only publicly traded ETFs that have like corn and wheat and all that stuff. Corn and wheat or corn or wheat. One of those two, Ukraine and Russia are responsible for 30% of the global exports of those agricultural commodities, which is super scary. And we got this 7.9% inflation print this morning prior to the commodity spike. So February's numbers are going to be worse than what we just saw, which is already the worst number in 40 years. Like, this is crazy shit. Yeah, I mean, this is this is particularly bad for folks in developing nations and, you know, low-income ranges and stuff like that because they're much more close. I don't know what, if it's a cultural thing or whatever, but they're much more close to, you know, the actual raw product, right? Like people actually go out and they buy grains and they buy meat and they cook stuff in their kitchen. It's not processed so that, you know, craft and, you know, whoever is absorbing some of those costs and, and you don't see it as quickly. Um, and, you know, of course, in, in developing markets and for low-income folks, this is a higher percentage of, and they of eat, their expenses. Right. Uh, food at home index rose 8.6% over the last 12 months, the largest such increase since 1981. That's amazing because food at home, at home. Is, food, food at home has been going down all these years. Like people aren't used to this at all. Uh, again, food away from home, same story. Six point eight percent, largest twelve month increase since nineteen eighty one, and again prior to the spike that we just saw. One of the things that's super scary about this is with the economic and financial warfare, we've never really seen like the complete like breakdown of trust with the fact that we could just like turn countries off, and that is um, that is frightening. Well, that's what I wanted to. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you. Like, let's say it's the right thing to do. So, so Russia stockpiled six hundred and thirty billion dollars worth of reserves, seemingly in advance of knowing they were about to do this, and basically we were able to coordinate with global central banks to make it so that that money was not usable. Mm -hmm. That might have been the right thing to do this time, but what does that do over the long term for sovereigns, countries thinking? that the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency. Maybe it's not anymore. Yeah, $630 billion, but it's based on trust. These are like uh, uh, digital, basically, buttons on somebody's balance sheet. It's, it's, no, you have $630 billion. Right, so Good if, luck. Right, so if Russia can't actually use that money, again, maybe that was the right decision now, but what does that mean five years from now, 10 years from now? You would think this is a watershed moment for cryptocurrencies, like that something changed. This changes things. Is it, though? I, I mean, so. are they? Are what, they I mean- I mean, I, I think we're also seeing that, you know, they're not really the answer. Well, not um, not, right, not right now. Mm -hmm. No, but R I think Russia can't operate by, by Bitcoin. It's not big enough. I think we will look back on this moment as one of the things that like 
sharply accelerated the transition or the adoption, the widespread adoption of crypto, whether it's CBDCs or Bitcoin or something else that hasn't been invented yet. Like the idea that something could just be confiscated, I think is going to change things. But it is, if, but is you it, also need reliable internet for that true. to work. In, and it doesn't seem like they have that either. And that's also a whole other kind of scary, right? Like this weapon. Yeah, okay. So, so you know, uh, financial weapon or whatever. Maybe that doesn't exist anymore because, you know, assuming crypto, you know, picks up. Um, then, you know, what are the options there? The bad guys keep financing whatever they can because crypto exists? I don't think that they can evade sanctions to the extent that we're doing them and and get around, like, not being able to use SWIFT. I don't think the world's systems are set up to, like, sell wheat and fuel for Bitcoin. Like, it's just that 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 idea probably we're, we're not even close to. It doesn't seem like that's really going to help them. Um I wanted to ask you guys about the long-term consequences of corporations pulling out from Russia. Did any of that surprise you, how quickly yeah. they all acted? I, I maybe eight or nine years ago, I did some boondoggle tour through Coca-Cola, and it was right after we lifted trade sanctions on Myanmar. And we were talking to some global VP, and he was telling us how they sell Coke everywhere. Anywhere where they're allowed to sell, they sell because they always had – I mean this is self-serving – this idea that there is almost diplomacy. You bring Coke yeah. abroad and they're like, we will sell Coke anywhere we're allowed to. And they have now pulled out of Russia. Like they've – I don't care think of Coca-Cola ever voluntarily pulling out of any market with the exception of India because when they went socialist, they wanted the secret formula. So they pulled out for them. And, but that was the only time they've ever voluntarily pulled out of a market. Were you telling me that the U.S. has never attacked a country with McDonald's? I think there's never been a cross-border war with a country that had a McDonald's in it. But I could be making that up. I, think, I, think, I think there might have been a New York Times columnist that said something. It was that a tweet. sounds it was like a tweet. Thomas Friedman. No, yeah. it, was, it yeah. was a tweet. It's yeah, true. It, that's true. about right. But McDonald's, McDonald's – Wait, did you say it was a tweet so it's true? Yeah. <laughs> McDonald's pulled out, right? And that's like 10% of their revenue. That's like not – that's material. Yeah. I mean, you know, that that's the thing here too, right? So it's like, you know, we're talking about Russia and India, but like, you know, China and Brazil. Now we're talking about this whole brick story that, you know, so many companies said this is this is where we're growing into. It's like we've matured, like you're a gigantic company, you've matured and, you know, you fully penetrated the U.S. audience. Um, you know, Russia has, you know, 100 million people there. And if you didn't have a lot of exposure, that was going to be one of your big growth opportunities. And that's no Wait, longer on the table. is it 10%? Can, it, can that possibly be true? Yes. How many people are in Russia? For McDonald's? 100 million? Russia's the 11th biggest economy, and it's 10% of they McDonald's They love revenue. McNuggets. They must love that shit. Who, I had no who idea. What, what, who doesn't? Any thoughts, any thoughts on the market's reaction today? I know it's like one day, so whatever. But it seems like on the on the CPI number, there wasn't like a big reaction in the stock market. People have been freaking out about CPI for over a year now. Um, you know, We all look at that Bank of America fund manager survey that comes out every month. Um, I think it was about – it's either 11 months ago or exactly a year ago that coronavirus went from number one to two. And the top risk that fund managers were screaming about was inflation and higher than expected inflation. You know, this, this is one of those really rare times where I was definitely 12 months ago saying it's very rare that the risk that is so apparent – actually transpires and becomes the risk. Right. And this is one of those really weird times where it did. A lot of people have been worried about inflation over the last 12 months. I was not one of them. Wrong, obviously. And it actually came true. Yeah. Obviously, we didn't see the Russian thing, but it was we had inflation before yeah, this. This makes it worse. We but. shouldn't we shouldn't under understate the degree to which the Russia thing is sending this into overdrive. Yeah. 100%. I do, we would not have like food commodities limit up day after day 
And certainly we wouldn't have the natural gas spike um, if it weren't I, for the conflict. I think from a sentiment standpoint and from a market standpoint, everyone was just a little bit better prepared for that surprise. There's no bulls. Yeah. There's no bulls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Hold on. Before we get off this, Allison, do you have any takes on the London Metals Exchange, like canceling those orders? Sam, you, anyone? I, want, well, I wanted to ask Goldman Sachs today shuttered their Russia business. They're the first major Wall Street bank to leave since the Ukraine war started. They won't be the last. Uh, Goldman Sachs is estimated to have $940 million in total exposure or less than 10 basis points of its total assets, according to Bank of America. So it's a rounding error, but maybe it's the importance is more symbolic. What, what, do you, what, do you think, uh, what do you think follows from there? Is everybody do, just do the same thing? Don't you think they were getting pressure from clients probably? Yeah. I mean, as I said, Employees. it's like the Coca-Cola thing. It's like you just can't do business there. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Coca-Cola, if they weren't getting the sort of pressure from all the other European countries, would have ever considered it. It's now just – I mean, it's sort of like the ESG movement. It's like now you're expecting – Yeah, I'm starting just, to think Russia is an ESG. It is. <laughs> what you wonder is if – is this self-defeating? I'm starting to worry about that. Well, also, do you wonder, is this like causing more harm than good? Because now we're just punishing average Russians and it's not like they want to live under Putin either. They want that's, McDonald's. That's yeah. incredibly sad. It's awful. He, well, he fucking did it. Like Putin did this to his, yeah, to his people. Yeah, it's not like they elected him or at least not legitimately. Well, yeah, and, and you see like, you know, the tens of thousands of people in the streets like protesting and all this stuff. And they're all get exposed to all this. Do you remember when like J.P. Morgan had to answer for like they had employees bribing government officials in Asia? Like, we'll get your kid a job at J.P. Morgan. Right. Yep. And people are like, <gasps> like, isn't that how you do business right. in these countries? There's no real other way. And we do business that way here, too. I'm sure we do. It's just maybe less overt or less offensive. Yeah. But it's not different. Yeah. It's probably – I think everyone just sort of made a collective decision at the same time, also understanding that this was going to come a cost – come with a cost to yourself, right? Like, even when, you know, Biden was talking about – um, you know, the oil import ban, like the first thing he says is gas prices are going to go up, but that's the sacrifice we're making for this to, to fight back. I was, dude, Tim Dillon is crazy. I was listening to him this morning. <laughs> he's like, yes, he is. He's like going through the price of gasoline to get from Manhattan to the Hamptons, like calculating it. <laughs> and he's like, look guys, it's very simple. Do you care about Ukraine or do you just want your summer back? This, this is the choice that we have to make. Obviously right. not seriously. Um, but I th I think like this idea of Americans sacrificing, we'll probably do it for a week or two, and then it's probably, it's probably going to morph into let's go Brandon and right. you it, know it'll turn into turn off the sanctions. Like even even early coronavirus, like everyone seemed to agree that all right, we're going to all go home, you know, stay home, go go back to the offices or whatever. But five days, five days of that. Yeah, five days. It was like, well, it was Easter, right? Wasn't it? It was like Trump says everything's going to be fine by Easter. That's like two months after sending people home. So now you, right, now you want a guy in the heartland with a pickup truck or a Suburban. You want this guy to give a shit about Ukraine more than three or four days with gas prices at $6. Right. It's going to be really tough to do. He doesn't know where Ukraine is on a map. Right. He's not watched glued to CNN. Like, he's just like, wait, what's going on? Also, from a policy Why standpoint, are we sacrificing? what should we be doing? Tapping the reserves? Or, or we what, are tapping, what can we do? We are tapping the reserves. But that's it's – it's like a, a drop in a So a what puddle. can we do? 
drink some drink some of this su suzhou yeah. soju <laughs> soju well i mean so i i think that's actually a question that more people are going to start asking right they're all going to become you know this is going to go on for a couple of weeks couple of months and everyone's going to decide that they're a geopolitical expert now and so the person in the suburban you know that's got 20 miles a gallon on his on his uh, SUV or whatever. He's going to say, "Why don't we just start firing missiles into the Kremlin or whatever?" And missiles instead of sanctions. Well, so yeah, I said, instead of I said this is maybe a watershed moment for cryptocurrency. We'll look back, maybe for green energy or some sort of energy independence. Or the opposite, because I think it's it feels like this. Is probably, it's not. I mean, the fact that Biden wasn't a big fan of fossil fuels has nothing to do with prices now, because those policies haven't had a chance to really take effect. But I think it, it's not a good look. That he was making it harder for oil companies to do business, increase their cost of capital, you know, fewer applications being accepted for fracking, shutting down the Keystone. Nothing to do with prices now, but it's not a good look right now. It makes us look like we're going to be more vulnerable. So instead of green, it could be like maybe it was a little premature to go in all on green and we should increase our domestic. Can we open that Let back me, up? Let me get this straight. We can't drill. We can't have pipelines. But then also you're going to cut off the flow to the rest of the world via sanctions. So de facto, 95% of the cars on the road are going to struggle to be able to fill our tanks. That ain't going to work politically. Right. It didn't electric work in the vehicles, 70s. Electric vehicles are 2% of the cars yeah, on the road. Yeah, and I think right. even if we get over— that's, that's more than zero, though. That's yeah. more than zero. But, well, that's that's also part of the story, though, right? Like, you know, even, um, you know, the last— Don't they use minerals for the batteries that are there, too? Right, the nickel, the nickel and the palladium yeah. and all that stuff. That didn't work, though, for Nixon. It didn't work for Ford. Yeah, but but fuel economy for cars is way up. It's only been going up, you know, since then. True. And, you know, when I was in high school, I, I drove a, a 79 Impala station 79, wagon. nice. Yeah, it was a used car that got passed down to my, my parents. And I got 15, 15, gal or 15 miles a gallon. That thing was like the size of a living room. It had, it had <laughs> nine seatbelts in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about China. So I don't know how close you were following what went on today. The U.S., the SEC, uh, the administration have been making noises about forcing Chinese companies that are going to trade on our exchanges to comply with our rules. Good timing. How dare they? Today, uh, some shit went down. Oh, Baba, yikes. Um, these stocks had like a fast motion crash in the middle of the day. K-Web's down 10%. What this is basically about is the SEC identified five U.S. listed ADRs. Which ones? Yum China. There's a biotech company called Beijing. Very clever. That sounds like what the Simpsons would call a Chinese biotech <laughs> company, right? Yeah. Beijing, I like it. Uh, ticker BGNE. For failing to comply with the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, which sounds made up, but I know it's real. And they would delist U.S. listed ADRs in 2024 for failing to allow the PCAOB, which is the accounting board, to access their audit reviews. It seems like this is not well-timed, but whatever. They they decided to go for it anyway. How much success are we going to have in driving these companies into Hong Kong listings and, I guess, losing the ability to invest in them for Americans? Will it matter? Will it matter to these companies? Will it matter to our investors? I don't know. What do you think? I think I'm getting ahead of myself in saying that an economic war with China would be a lot more costly for us than yeah why are we why are we pulling on this thread right now uh, this uh, is it's like the end of the Godfather where they take out all every, all the enemies of the family at once yeah maybe, maybe maybe that's it it's like you know things are gonna be bad now we can it's a kitchen sink quarter as they say 
you know, in corporate America. Alice, do you have a strong opinion about U.S. Well, investors being victimized by Chinese blue chip tech companies? I have a strong opinion about that, but I, I am concerned about general so decoupling of financial markets and sort of trade in general. That I, I worry that, you know, I, I'm now wondering if we sort of had this golden era of global trade and prosperity. And, you know, I think anyway. Yeah, what do you mean had? What do you mean had? I don't like that. Well, that's what I said. I'm, not, I'm sort of worried about this. And I think there is something to any way everyone expected if we went into Chinese markets that see how great capitalism is and overthrow their authoritative government. That didn't happen. I think there there is something to more global integration uh, fostering goodwill. And Yes, because mm -hmm. it, it gives us all this shared thing to lose. Yep. If if yeah. things get violent or or we stop talking, like I don't. In some ways, I think I'm optimistic, uh, although I could be completely wrong, that this is not going to lead to a Taiwan situation, because there's a lot more mutually assured destruction to these sorts of sanctions on China than there is from Russia. Mm. I mean, we're tied up in Russia, but not nearly as tied up as we are with China. Well, we, so we had Dan Nathan on the show last week, and he's like, hypothetically, China pulls this shit with Taiwan right now. Mm -hmm. Is are, is Disney pulling out of China? Not a chance. Mm -hmm. Are any of these companies pulling out of China? They'll say no. It's different because blank. And I think we all kind of like well, just become Taiwan that. experts. That actually they have a historical claim. Yeah, yeah. They'll oh right. God. They'll become Ch Taiwan experts, and they'll give China the cover for basically doing what it wants. And I think China probably knows that. But yeah, one of the most sort of odd, uncomfortable things of the last couple of weeks was you know hearing about. You know, the U.S. sending a delegation to the Winter Olympics. But then, you know, reading in the papers that we don't have any government uh, officials going because they're conducting genocide over there. Yeah. And for a lot of people, this is the first time they're hearing about this or, you know, getting attention to this. And it's like, well, wait a second. What, why, why are we sending people over there? Why are we doing business with people over there? Why, why, why is this? Why are we tolerating this? Yeah. And then, you know, it's But seemed, we won't go seems, to the Olympics. We won't go to the Olympics. And, you know, but, and then we're willing to, you know, do this with. with it's a Russia. serious question. And I really don't know the answer to this. Did the Olympics actually happen? I'm <laughs> <laughs> dead serious. Had, like, is there any evidence that an, an Olympics took place? Did anyone see any event televised anywhere? I saw anywhere? some scandal about a Russian skater. Yeah, but did they skate or did they just have the scandal? I think she fell. Yeah. Guys, I, I think it mattered. It mattered to the athletes, mm -hmm. and you know they're all. Oh, yeah, no, I feel like two institutions. I'm just teasing. We love <laughs> we love the Olympic athletes. No longer that, matter. Yeah. Like the Oscars and the Olympics, nobody cares. I'm absolutely convinced there was no Olympics this year. There was just commercials for it. <laughs> I can't. It, was, watched, it was all replaced curling. with curling. Of course you did. Yeah. yeah, it was all curling. And how did that go, Duncan? <laughs> It wasn't that exciting. Well, give us all the details. We have so much time. <laughs> it's okay. Why did you watch curling in particular? Because that's what, when you were flipping through the channels, that that's what you stumbled on? Yeah, or were you looking on. for it? It was just on. I watched well, some snowboarding. No, you, have, you have CNBC on, and then it goes to five, and it cuts right. straight to curling. Yeah. Did the Chinese actually win like a lot of medals in this? Was it worth it for them? I think they did. You think so, but no proof. <laughs> I'm pretty sure none of this actually. I'm pretty you know, sure none right. of this I don't actually really happened. I don't really know. You know that thing how there were movies that everybody thinks were were movies but they weren't. The, like the, Kazam. Yeah, like there's a there's <laughs> oh, a movie oh, yeah, poster yeah. for Shaquille um, O'Neal. What is it? It's like, it's like the Kazam. Mandela effect where everybody sort of agrees on the same thing, but it's actually false information. But Kazam was not a movie. That blew my mind too. Josh has his own movie. No, it, it's it was called it was Kazam. Not it was, a movie. It did not happen. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. fake poster right. with Shaq dressed as a genie, and his arms are folded, and it just looks like it should be a movie. Right. 
There never was that movie. That's a great right. example, then, but you can't name another. And then, no, no, another example is um, the Monopoly Man. Yes, I can. The, I saw- the Monopoly Man. Everybody thinks the Monopoly Man wears a monocle. He does not. Stop. What? Come on. Yeah, it's, on. it's right Googling. up there. Everyone, he has a mustache and a top hat, but no monocle. No monocle. Everyone thinks he has a monocle. He has Son no what monocle. What the hell? How come we think he has a monocle? Oh, here he does. In some pictures, he does. Though. Nah. Oh. Uh, I feel like it's just when he reads. There is another example of that. Oh, here it, is. it says the Mandela effect and how it affects uh, and how it affects you. That's I'll give you another fake movie poster: Airbud Two, Golden Receiver, and he has a football in his mouth. And people think that that movie actually happened, but there was only ever one Airbud. Well, Air, Airbud, everyone knows that absolutely happened. You knew that? No, it didn't. Did it? it oh, yeah. But it, it wasn't did. a football movie. I don't think it was. I think he still played basketball. So why did they I mean, make come on, his you can play two sports? If it was not a movie, I think somebody just like made it as a goof, and everyone just thinks that that actually happened, but it never really happened. And I, I was always partial to Homeward Bound, personally. Homeward Bound, great, great <laughs> film. Uh, so listen, so the Chinese, so the Chinese put out their own statement, and they were like, they put it out at midnight China time, which tells you that they actually care about this, mm-hmm. and they were basically like. We are continuing to cooperate and we hope we can resolve this amicably. So part of me feels like they don't care and they'll just repatriate all their countries. Haven't they been making it harder for Chinese companies to trade on U.S. stock markets on their – as well? They've been demanding them to come back at gunpoint. So Mm -hmm. maybe they – I don't know if they care or not. So our friend Brendan Ahern who runs Crane Shares put out a statement that they're going to switch out of USADRs into Hong Kong share class – the ETF, which is gigantic for a Chinese tech ETF, will remain the same. They'll just buy the, the stocks on a different exchange. So there is a workaround if you want to still invest in these things. I think the long-term cultural effects of what's going on right now is kind of weird. It's not great. It's not great. Because like even because a lot of the the exchanges of information, cultural stuff starts with, you know, these sort of economic trade business interests, right? Right. Like, you know, someone's dad goes to China to do some business, they come back and it's like, I'm going to tell you all about all these cool things, you know, I learned in China and, you know, all those kids, you know. I brought you souvenirs. Yeah, I'm with you on that. that, Are we going to have less of that? We have a chart of of, uh, Alibaba, Crane Shares, JD. John, throw that up. Like, this is just, is this a year? Nine months? This is like substantial. It's it's even worse if you if you bring it back to like February. Crane shares is seventy percent off the highs. I think. I mean, if you're a U.S. investor, and these companies leave the New York Stock Exchange, you don't care. You're like, <laughs> you're like, please put me out of my misery. I mean, this chart kind of looks like a lot of like high growth tech stocks too from the last year. Right, U.S. or China, it almost wouldn't even matter. Oh yeah. my God, Baba is this is Baba below the IPO price? That stock is. Hold on, let me see. That's one of the that's one of the biggest crashes I think I've I've ever seen. It went from three twenty to ninety. Uh, no, it's not below the IPO price, but it's close. You don't hear from Jack Ma a whole lot anymore. He's not in charge of it anymore. Right. They told him to take a take take five. So uh, back to inflation. What did we want to do with this commodity spot index? Oh, uh, throw up these charts, Big John. The price biggest, change of one the one biggest, week price change. The biggest weekly change oh ever, and again. This has not yet shown up in the official CPI data. We'll see that next month. Do we have more charts here? Today's today's uh, today they did February CPI and it's another record, seven point nine percent. Is that the number? Yeah. No, I think we got January. We, did we get Feb- we got was it February? February today. We got February. And, it's it, February. and it broke another record. Right, all the way back to um, yeah, January nineteen eighty two. 
I I still have this stupid opinion that the cure for high prices is high prices. Am I going to be wrong? Yeah. This time I will be. Well, I mean, I think uh, I was reading Jason Furman on Twitter saying we've reached the point where it's getting baked into wages. Yeah. And once that happens. Then that's it. The genie's out of the bottle. genie's out of the bottle. And, you know, I think anyway, the Fed is going to do some rate hikes. I doubt they're going to be as aggressive as they were going to be before. I I think, yeah, the the wage thing I think is a big deal because I was actually talking to my parents. Can you explain what that means, though? So, like, we now are paying people and implicit in that dollar amount is what we think it costs them to get to and from work and put food on their table. So now it's the wage price spiral. So uh, people demand higher wages to compensate for inflation so they have more money so they spend more. So prices go up again. And then they ask for even higher wages. And so, Okay, well, so well, it's like, like a feedback loop. It's, yeah. it's paying for that demand. Speaking that of Jason Furman, I saw him tweet this today. This is disgusting. We're looking at a chart of real average hourly earnings. Mm-hmm. And he said average hourly earnings have been declining for more than a year as inflation has outpaced nominal wage gains. This is larger than any 12-month pre-pandemic decline since 1980. So nominal wages have been going up. Cool, especially in the lower end. Like they were getting the biggest gains. Mm-hmm. But look at this. Inflation took all that away and then some. And at the low end, you know, things that have, are most affected by inflation take up a bigger share of your budget. So, so, so when I was, so I was, I was born in Queens, uh, thirty nine and a half years ago. Are you Peter Parker? I'm, I'm Peter Parker. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the multiverse Peter Parkers, and you know, I never really quite understood the story of how this happened. But my parents picked up the family, and we all moved to Kentucky. And it wasn't until a couple as of weeks. As one does. Yeah, as one does. But right. it wasn't until a couple of weeks ago, you know, I'm talking to my mom and she's like telling me how beef prices are going up and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we have this historic inflation, whatever. Um, and she said, yeah, that's why we moved to Kentucky. Like there was inflation, but your dad's employer like couldn't give him a raise. And so, so you need a lower cost of living. We need a lower cost of living. So, you know, like what's your the alternative is staying here and like starving or we're going to go to a place where everything's a lot cheaper. That's so what part of Kentucky did you end up in? Louisville. Oh wow. Okay. But the problem is nothing there's no problem with Louisville. The problem is now you can't where are you going to go? It's food, right? Food is food food right. is food. Yeah, I mean there's been there's less dispersion of prices than there was in the 80s. Yes, but rents there's still a huge dispersion between for example Queens and Louisville. That's true in yeah. New York rates in particular. Right. Uh, almost anywhere other than here save for Miami, would be better from a cost of living perspective, uh, which is why I'm so smart. I'm hiring so many people in New York. <laughs> so, <laughs> some part some part of me should maybe listen to my own uh, commentary. How Sa- much is a burrito bowl these days? Forget about it, sister. <laughs> Sam, you wrote about uh, the other side of the surging oil price story. Yep. Can you get into this a little bit and explain what you're, what you're telling people? Yeah. I mean, you know, to be clear, you know, no one's disagreeing – with the fact that, you know, rising costs of energy and the rising costs of anything that you don't want to pay for, you know, that's going to that's going to pinch. And that means, you know, less discretionary, whatever, less money for fun. But, you know, if we're thinking from like a higher, you know, stock market wide or a macro economy standpoint, um, yeah, you have to go back to, you know, these these bigger trends of um, energy intensity in the economy has been on the decline for decades. Uh, fuel economy for cars. Uh, have been improving for decades. Like, thank God, though, because if that were not the case, this would be so much worse. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Does uh, the does the average company use less oil than it did twenty years ago, thirty years ago? I think I think the message from you know these sort of en- energy intensity charts. Um, and I don't think I have it up, or maybe like if you scroll down a little bit further. But you know, it's just 
Oh, you hit the paywall. I, I, I should give you we guys. Hit the, we you know, hit the reg wall. <laughs> I think I think it, I'm it's, registered. It's, it's, it's a really it's a really simple chart. It's like an OECD economies. It's like the global developing markets, emerging markets, and since like the 70s, um, uh, the 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 thousand barrels per dollar of GDP or whatever. I don't know what the metric is. This has been on decline for, for decades. So, so yeah, we're just less exposed to this. Everything's more efficient. Slightly mitigating factor, but the sticker shock doesn't go away. No. Like whether or not we're more energy efficient, people don't like to see that number. But are we using right. more energy overall because we're making more stuff, even if we're making it more efficiently? Yeah, I think so. But on a per capita basis, uh, I think, uh, the situation has improved for John, individuals. John, let's go to this PCE shares uh, chart, energy, goods, and services. What yeah. is this saying? So this is this is from uh, one of Neil Dutta's note from Renaissance Macro. And so this is uh, energy, goods, and services spending as a percentage of personal consumption expenditures. Um, so that know, decline starts in, let's say, 1980. Yeah, it goes from, you know, almost 10% down to about 4%. It's not, you know, the numbers aren't mind-blowing, but it's in line with these trends of, you know, energy is becoming less a part of what we're spending money on. How much of this is because prices went down and how much of it is because of efficiency? I think it's probably a bit of both because, yeah, you see like in, you know, the early 80s and then you also see, you know, in 2008 when we had that big oil price spike that that the the price move certainly has an impact there, so yeah, it's probably going to jump up. Um, you know, when we get we the, can already the see it. Data. Oh yeah, yeah. It hasn't affected earnings. Put this next chart up, John. Earnings keep rising. Whatever inflation does, rising earnings per share has been a constant through different inflation regimes. This time might be different, just given the speed of the spike. You know why earnings are going to get hit? Because they have to. Cons- right? Consumers are going to get hit. And so, right. ipso facto, the magnet the magnitude is too great for us not to see. Uh, no, not saying a recession, but, but another thing. Another thing too, though, um, the U.S. has become a net exporter, or or as of I think it was as of twenty twenty or as of twenty twenty one, the U.S. has become a net exporter of petroleum and petro- refined petroleum products. Yes, which so, doesn't help with the price, though. It doesn't help with the price, but a lot of this money is going back to U.S. companies. That's interesting. It's go- it's just moving from California to Texas. Hmm. Right. Or, or New York to Oklahoma. It's not necessarily money going out the door to different consumers in another world. Right, and, and this is why, you know, the, the energy ETFs, the U.S. energy ETFs are up, you know, 20, 30%. So if you, could bet on a, if you could bet on a city's economy right now, you would want to be long Houston, Houston. short yep. Honolulu. Right. That kind of thing. You know, uh, you know what's nice to see? I know it's, it's short term, but whatever. When we announced that we were going to stop importing oil that day, crude spiked to 130. It's now down to 106. So it's pulled back quite a bit. Some of that is market S- mechanics. Small just victory. A, just totally. A, just a lot of people getting way too bullish at the same time. And I don't know. Most of these commodity spikes don't last for long. Oil is just a, a really weird one to figure out, too. I mean, we had negative prices uh, two years ago. But, you know, I mean, this is also a thing where, you know, it's not it's not a it's not an asset class where that's necessarily, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news kind of a thing. What do we think about uh about Carl Icahn selling Oxy to Warren Buffett. Is that who sold it? No, I know he sold his stake, but does the timing match up? 
Buffett. I, I think the timing is about the same. Yeah. Like they they filed they had filings at about the same time. Yeah. The irony is that Icon's stake in Oxy was an activist stake saying that they should not have bought Anadarko. Right. He was trying to stop the merger. Well, he did well. The value of the company now is predicated on the fact that they bought Anadarko. Right. Like the reason Buffett wants to invest is because it's the biggest natural By the way, guess. I watched the Icon doc. We were talking about that at dinner last week. Yeah, did you like it? I loved it. Did you watch it? Yeah, it was good. I was actually going to bring it up for my what I'm consuming. Well, oh. let's just, no, let's just do it right now. Just real quick. I feel like this is weird to say because he's obviously like a shark, but there is like a, a sweetness about him. Yeah. Well, there's also something kind of like just direct. Like he just goes into companies and just speaks the truth, which most people won't do. The shareholders going, the TWA employees going to his door. Yeah. And he's like, are you going to let me talk? Right. Are you going to let me talk? <laughs> he brings his kids, his outside. Accent, yeah, he brings the kids yeah. outside. I, th I thought what was interesting about it, I kind of knew this history, but most people didn't. He didn't start off as I know everything. Right. He was like an options broker. He was just very good at Making figuring money. out how to make money. Yeah. And I almost feel like, if he ended up in Hollywood or as a military contractor- He's or, 100 out of 100, 100 chances at life he'll become rich every time. Yeah. Yeah, I f right. I feel like if you if you uh, just reset everything, within like five years, he'd be- He could have ran, right Holly ran Hollywood. Right. So what is that? Is that And Queens? apparently he could have been a philosopher too. Is that, is that like the Queens in him? Or mm. what is he from the Bronx? I th no, I think he's from Queens. Yeah, well, the, the story with his father- By the like, way, I, I was also born in Queens. <laughs> no, we know. <laughs> so just we to know. reflect back on what we just when he like When he cried <laughs> thinking about his dad, like not loving him and stuff like that was-, that was uh, yeah. a, he, he has a sweet relationship with his kids too. Yeah. He called his yeah. dad a communist. Yes, that was crazy. <laughs> I do that. Uh, he, well, so the other, the other cool thing was his relationship with his wife. She looks way younger than him and she is. They bust balls. It was great. But I think like most people would look at that and be like, oh, she's there for the money. No, actually, she worked with him and they spent a ton of time together yeah. and they've been together forever. For a long time, yeah. She wasn't like an 80s trophy that he forgot to I, I Googled like, that. Yeah. I Googled that while I was watching. I thought that was cool that they like, had that relationship. Like the 90s, I think. Uh, and his son and his son is like actually driving major investment Netflix. Decisions. Remember that? That Netflix yeah. investment was his son. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't know that. I thought that was a. Carl I remember thing. that. Who's Apple responsible too. for Blackbuster? Right, Apple, Apple too. Uh, he sunk that. Oh, okay. Icon sunk that. He f***ed that up. He mm -hmm. killed. He yeah, crushed it. Yeah, he, they could. They could have been Netflix, and he he really messed that one up. Well, anyway, back to Occidental Petroleum. What Buffett sees in the company is what Icon fought the company to not do, and I think that's why Icon gets the reputation that he's a vulture or a raider or whatever, because very often when he runs into a situation. It's to stop a company from making a big investment and have that capital come back in the form of a dividend. Well, so now, now Berkshire is going to push Oxy to get into the metaverse. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very likely. Uh, Allison, you talk, you're, you're talking about risk a lot this uh -huh. past two weeks. I read your – it's called the known unknowns. It's your Substack letter. I'm a weekly reader as well. Oh, Michael you. is a weekly reader. You're worried that young people are too compliant and that people are not – willing to take enough risk or rebel enough in order for our country to continue to innovate. And one of the examples you cited, I was giggling to myself, was you walk around on the streets and you see people in their 20s wearing masks and you're like, what the f is wrong with these people? I'm so with you on that, like 100%. There's a negative correlation between age and outdoor mask wearing in my neighborhood. That's Why weird. are we wearing masks outdoor? They don't even work indoors. And if we're in our 20s, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing at this you know, people point? People who are 80 are maskless on the street, but people who are, I live near NYU. All the NYU students are all wearing masks all the time. They are. It could be that they're all immunocompromised. 
It's probably not that though. It's probably exactly right. what you're saying, right. which is that. I mean, why aren't why aren't these kids like bigger badasses? Well, especially even during like when things were bad at the pandemic, they were always at the lowest risk. Yet seemed like seemed to be going along with everything. Like I, and what's, so what's the problem? First, what's the problem with this? Well, I mean, it's we Im- know they're not having any sex. Yeah, we know that, that they're not know. individuating from their parents. Like they go to college and still talk to their parents eight times a day. Yeah, and it, we know it, that too. And individuation from your parents is important. It's part of your psychological growth. The bo- like the boomers turned eighteen and f- and fled. Yeah, like for all their faults. I'm not a boomer, so I'm not like, um, uh, I'm not I'm not doing an encomium to boomerhood. But they left. They were rebellious. They, they did were rebellious. Stuck. They grew up. They left. They did whatever they wanted. Yeah, they had protests where they got arrested and. Protested unpopular things like they they were they were they were rebels. And you probably become really good parents too. Like if you have like a long track record of making mistakes and getting out of that. Yes. Stuff. Well, aren't they parents to them now? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know. All right. So we have a generation of rule <laughs> followers. So we're probably not going to produce the next Steve Jobs out of this well, crop. Exactly. So um, or the next Mark Zuckerberg either. So maybe it's good. Yeah. Well, that's true. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, to be an innovator, you have to be a rule breaker. Yeah. I, I, I was reading this book by Joel Guilty. Mulder, who um, <laughs> wrote about the culture of growth. And what you need is you need people who push back on the prevailing wisdom, question the rules, question authority. And that really is what he thinks is behind prosperity. So if you have a bunch of people who are like, yeah, I'll follow all the rules and, in fact, get kind of angry at older people not following the rules. There was a great, uh, vi- there's a great viral TikTok that was going around that splices Kanye West talking and Steve Jobs talking. They're basically talking about the same thing. Yeah. And Kanye starts by saying, you know, when you're a kid, if you stand on a table, your parents are going to yell at you and they tell you to get off that table. And those are, that's a rule that they set in front of you. And as you grow older, people are just constantly putting these tables around you that you can't stand on. And before you know it, you don't know why, you know, you're not standing on those tables. And he's like saying that, like, you know, if you really put your mind to it, like, you know, maybe you should stand on the table and, and you know, take that risk. You know, Is that a dare? Where, where's the table you know right who's here? Yeah, <laughs> we're going to do it right after this after a couple more You know shots. who's a great millennial? Mohammed bin Salman. This guy, this guy, <laughs> this guy knows how to shake shit up. So he, he like gets a little bit of power. Uh-huh. And he locks up everybody in a hotel. And he's basically like, everybody here is going to give up all of their money back to me. Duncan's shaking his head. And pledge loyalty to me. And, like, that's a guy that was not afraid of breaking some rules and some taboos. I feel like there's... there's Is that taboo in Saudi Arabia, though? I guess not. Like, what, locking people? No, it's never been done before. Yeah, Never had a royal lock up the other royals and demand loyalty. If he wants to be rebellious, you know, let women drive. Now we're now we're going now we're going crazy. Do you have any idea what could happen if women start driving like all over the place without any supervision? Is gonna be flying cars and in the UAE and well. So what happens with this whole generation of rule followers now? Are they are they like terrified of their own shadow? Do they just not take the risks that are necessary for us to have creative destruction and capitalism? Or maybe are we worried too much about this and they'll come out of their shell? I mean, I, I worry about it some, but sometimes I think maybe even it's good because you'll always get that minority who are rule followers, who aren't rule followers. Mm. And in fact, they have so much to rebel against because all, because it, I mean, I hate rallying against Gen Z and millennials because I actually, the ones I actually speak to are actually delightful and thoughtful and hate Wait, all their- Wait, what, what, what do you think you are? Are you an Xer? I, I think I'm this born the same year you, as you. You and me are the same, but so what are we? We are not in a generation. No, because no. we're too late. 
We're so not the, Gen Xers. The Xers won't claim us. No, we weren't. Because remember the whole slacker thing? Like, that was that not wasn't us. us. We were too young. We were like in junior high. But the millennials won't have us either, Allison. We're, they will not claim us. We're, right? we're generation. Oh, you're a boomer. Yeah, so we're generation millennials were a bloomer. So we're, we're, we're free to comment with no stake in any game. I kind of like that outsider status. You have no home. You have so, no yeah. home. I think, if there, I think if there's evidence of some hope here is all these reports of small business applications spiking and everybody going out and doing their own thing. Yeah, but aren't there a lot of old people who are retirees who are starting their own That's business? That's a great question is, is who are these people? But it's all, No, it's, it's also a lot of young people. So many people I are leaving yeah, both. I mean, I mean, millennials are getting a lot older now. So, you know, I think a lot of these people are- And they're are, changing are jobs more because we had this downward trend in job changing. Right. Can we? But can we address this part? This is you. Listen, hold on, hold on. Thirty percent of millennials are bald, so millennials are not kids anymore. All right, this, no, they, no, they are not. <laughs> I think we're actually we're talking about the older Gen Zs, is what we're talking about. We're talking about the sure. kids coming out of school now. Allison, this is you, and I. This resonated with me. Um, this is concerning not only for their well-being, but also because you need to be defiant to be a great innovator. Coming up with good ideas requires rejecting the prevailing wisdom and questioning your elders. You can't be a rule follower, let alone an obsessive rule enforcer and moral scold, as many young people seem to be lately. So you probably wrote that just for popularity on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) But I do see like people filming their elders and then like uploading it to shame them. Mm -hmm. And they are scolds. And everything you say is problematic Mm -hmm. and friends is problematic and like things that you would normally look at and be like, all right, what's what could possibly be harmful about this? I'll tell you what that that kind of like pervasive force within culture maybe is more pronounced online than it is in real life, but it's a thing. It's messed up. I mean, I think you worry more about being shamed and scolded by young people than old people. And it should be the other way around. Right. Young people don't seem to have any patience or tolerance for somebody who thinks differently than they do right now. But maybe it won't stay like that forever. Well, also, as I say, the actual Gen Zers I know when I teach or when I interact with um, older people's kids actually are great. And if they complain to me about anything, it's the fact that all their peers are annoying. So there is a critical mass of people who are rebels. They just aren't being a, maybe they'll come into their own and fight back against the annoying people in their own generation. And a, a lot of these, a lot of these kids too you know, probably graduated college into a booming economy. And yeah. so it probably, you know, they don't have to worry about stuff like work and paychecks and paying the bills and stuff. So this is the only thing that they can worry about is, you know, criticizing society. Right. Um, Although it is crazy that the whole pandemic happened. It was not really a huge risk to young people, yet they were like so enthusiastic about all these huge restrictions on their lives. I'll still never get over that. You know what's great about Gen Z? They don't tweet. Yeah, are they tweeting is millennial is yeah. millennial and X are bullshit. Yeah, G- uh, Gen Z will go on TikTok and shame you with a duet. Yeah, <laughs> so they'll take a video of you saying something, and they will go gonna, side by side and roll their this. eyes. They're going to upload this and say, "I hope so." And then they're going to start marching out in front of you know the building. Can you imagine? I can't imagine. Uh, all right, tucking this in here. Biden came out in favor of acknowledging the existence of crypto. Mike, was there, anyth- was there anything in that? Talk about OK Boomer. I read the first. I read this for three minutes. So I was like, I can't. There's nothing in there. <laughs> it's just it's word salad. There's nothing. Anything worth mentioning from that, or not really? Um, maybe what's what was excluded from it. Like it wasn't like you know we're going to shut this down or this is like. Oh no, he's yeah. like we're going to figure out how to regulate it. Yeah, so that that's got to be like the fact that it's not 
terrible news to the crypto community is about as good as yeah. News I was to say, uh, Bitcoin price rallied because it's basically a stock at this point. Um, there seems to be a lot of excitement and enthusiasm about regulators and banking authorities racing in here to to police all this stuff. I I thought this was supposed to be the opposite of that, but apparently this is now just another Wall Street plaything, and everybody wants more regulation so they can get their ETF. Is that is that a, a reasonable read on? Bitcoin's price rallying on increased regulation. You know, maybe maybe it's too sardonic. Oh, maybe it's be, it's like a real asset now. Yeah, I I think that's what it is, right? It's like you know, you hit critical mass with like the high risk takers who are willing to put money into this in an unregulated market, but now everyone's looking for well, who who's going to be the next buyer? And you know, once you put some regulation into that. Then it's like, okay, you open the doors to institutions, and it's like, okay, here's another trillion dollars that we can pour into crypto. It's it's cool that um, JP Morgan is going to come come in and uh, be part of all this decentralization, <laughs> I guess. There was a chart in Barron's over, uh, last weekend showing the breakdown on who's trading crypto, like the volume. And institutional investors are now a bigger and bigger player, which might explain why it tends to act, at least in the short term, very much in line with the NASDAQ. Like on, on, on big news releases. It's the same pool of capital. Yeah. Really? How, mu- how much of his institutional money? There was a chart in Barron's and it showed the breakdown between institutional and retail and the institutional volume is growing and it's basically dominating at this point. Huh. Well, institutional dollars will eventually dominate all these markets the longer they stay around because it's just bigger money. So I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, who put this in the dock? Downside risk. Morgan Stanley, strategist, see equity storm forming. Oh, here we go. Allison, look at this chart. So institutional is the blue line. Retail is the top. It's black. It's tiny. It's basically all, all institutional dollars now. So this is all pension money? Great. I guess hedge funds uh, hedge, on, yeah. on, behalf of, on behalf of Kentucky teachers, which, by yep. the way, you saw that. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What a shit Something. show. What? Kentucky teachers are what, in? The Kentucky teachers pension system yeah, is I the think, second biggest holder of right. Oh, okay. it's, Bank. It's like a of small – I think it was a small percentage of their, the pension fund itself. But still. But, yeah. All right. All right. What's this? Global right. earnings revisions More. turn negative for the first time since September 2020. So this I, is notable. I think we get a. I think we get a global recession. I'm obviously not rooting for it, but uh, Michael Wilson from Morgan Stanley wrote, uh, "We are firmly in the grasp of a bear market that is incomplete in both time and price. Earnings delivery is paramount at a time when liquidity is being sucked out by central banks around, across the world. Removing the support could leave some indices floating on air." Uh, and they say any release should be sold, so the they're th- not by the they're not by the dip anymore. So there's gonna there's gonna be a furious rally, right? With God willing, we'll get some sort some sort of resolution or or even talks of one. And everyone's everyone's sold, everyone's bared up. So we'll get you know we'll, we will get a nice bounce at some point. But the problem is, um, then what? Sam, you have, I, you, have yeah. you have some pushback on this. Yeah, I. I, I really like I mean I like I, I follow all the strategists pretty closely. They send me all their research and stuff. And and this one um I kinda had I, I had two issues with. Um the first one was um when you look at this chart, it's like yes, this is accurate, this is what the data says. But um I don't know if you guys got the other chart that I sent that was below that. Um We do. Change in S P five hundred quarterly earnings per share. Yeah. First two months of the quarter. First two months of the quarter. So it's kinda it's basically the same message. But it zooms out, and instead of going to 2020, it goes out to 2017. And so this is something that was flagged by uh, Nick Collis at Datatrek. And basically, the message here is early on in this the quarter. Do you see what this is saying? It's all, they're always cutting estimates. Analysts are always cutting estimates. In the first into, two months. Yeah, going into earnings season. Why? And it's always the current quarter. 
I don't know what it is. I think it's like earnings management and it lowers the bar for earnings beats and stuff. Because in every single one of these quarters, by the way, more than 50% of companies are beating expectations. This seems to have shifted, though, in 2020 So, so what Nick, 21. So what Nick was saying was, you know, with early 2020 and 2021, this is like very sort of in line with what happens in early recoveries. The analysts underestimate how big the or how aggressive the recovery is coming out from the bottom but after you know a couple of quarters you get back to this thing where you know all right it's you know the quarter just ended earnings season is about to start people are always nervous and you start cutting estimates going into the earnings announcement so so and then they, and then the, and then they report and then they beat expectations by whatever percentage. And- so, so maybe the market's getting ahead of this in fact the market is already sussing out some sort of economic slowdown right i I mean, you know, you also had, you know, the whole, I mean, we can go into the valuation question for forever, but like, you know, valuations discretion is giving people sort of a reason to sell. Um, I don't know if, I'm, I'm not really convinced that we're on the cusp of a recession because there's still so much pent up demand. I mean, this was like, this was a big theme in the, the Q4 earnings season. It was a big theme in Q3 too, where companies were all like anything in terms of like caution regarding you know, sales in the current quarter or the next quarter had to do with the fact that they couldn't keep up with the demand. They didn't have enough workers to sell product. They didn't have enough workers to manufacture product. They couldn't put together, you know, their their products because, you know- In other words, missing- none of it was a demand problem. It was not a, it was not a demand problem. It was all a supply I problem. I guess you could say, but we've never seen inflation run at these levels without right. a subsequent recession, especially when rates are normalizing. But- so well, It's also the, often the Fed that causes the recession. That's not going to be the case this time. Or maybe it is the Fed's inaction that's causing the well, recession. Well, here's the thing. The Fed's just in a bad, a bad spot because it's sort of like after a while, inflation does so much damage, you know. There's nothing they can do. So, yeah. I mean, you know, before you get to the recession, though, like you have to do something so bad that, you know, all the employers decide to take off all of their 10 million open job listings, right? Yeah. So this is – we're not going from a place where, you know, we're – the economy has matured. Every all the signals are saying that the economy still wants to grow. It's just that there's not enough stuff and not enough supply. So what happens is, you know, as these prices go up and you know the cure for high prices, higher prices, you're going to lose some of that incremental demand. But you know, it's like a, a you know the U.S. economy is basically like a hot restaurant, right? It's like it's fully booked, but there's also a line waiting outside, right? Someone cancels their reservation because, you know, they can't make it. They're going to still fill those tables because there's still someone waiting in line. Unless, unless the sticker shock of what it costs to hire the next 10 employees actually does make employers start to pull people, uh, pull those open jobs off the table and just say, as much as we would like to add people right now at prevailing labor costs – we literally can't do it, and everybody having that idea at the same time actually is yeah. possible given the current dynamics in the the labor market. Well, well gas I, prices are so high, no one can drive to the restaurant. Right, and right. well, speaking of gas prices, well, that's that's actually what's going on with you know the, the energy producers, right? Like, sure, they can make a ton of money selling even more, but they need energy. to use energy themselves. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, they have to use energy themselves, but they also went through that cycle, right, where, you know, they see the fluctuation and then the prices come down a little bit, but they were just drilling too They had too many operators out there and half of these companies go bankrupt. It's also possible to have a mild recession, right? Like a recession doesn't have to be catastrophic world ending. We used to have a lot of mild recessions. Remember the Great Moderation? Yeah. Well, it's it's harder to have a, a mild recession now because we've centered the whole economy around the stock market. 
and stocks don't do anything mildly. Well, and that's why the Fed, I mean, even if you look at the Fed's plans, they want to go to neutral. Like you don't, like you can't go to neutral. What's to fight neutral, inflation. 7% right now? No, neutral is like <laughs> 2%. And, but like that doesn't fight inflation. That just doesn't juice inflation. Right. But they're not even planning on doing much about inflation. Well, I think they think it'll go away eventually. Yeah, that seems to be our solution for everything. <laughs> All right, uh, hard pivot. This week we're gonna do we're gonna do Josh's gossip corner. Uh, what does that mean? Barry Diller is being investigated for insider trading. And when I read this, I said nobody could be this fucking stupid. I can't listen. I could be wrong, but let me just read this to you guys. And not not to get personal, but would anybody really do this? U.S. probes trade by Barry Diller. And David Geffen before a big merger. So basically, these guys were buying call options on Activision days before Microsoft bought the company. Additionally, they're friends with the old CEO of Activision. I mean, it looks so ridiculously bad. Is it possible it's just a coincidence? I mean, I don't want you to accuse anybody of insider trading, but like, what was your take when you read this? It seems insane to me that rich people would even think about doing something like this on purpose. Yeah, I've got, so, yeah, so when I saw this, um, and listen, I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything like that, but when I saw this, you know, I'm thinking it's got to be either one extreme or the other extreme, right? One, this is complete, not true. They get clean. It was, you know, coincidence, paperwork, mix up or whatever. Or, again, let me preface this. this. This is me conspiracy, putting a conspiracy theory hat. Yeah, yeah. Maybe this is so prevalent among like the billionaire community that everyone's just constantly trading on, you know, insider information and options and stuff. Right. And then this is like one out of a thousand billionaires who, you know, didn't file their paperwork correctly and it got out. And then this becomes Or they just made so much money because this was just it was forty dollars and it went to ninety three. I mean, this was a big controversy to the point. So it's so it's Diller. It's his son in uh, his von Furstenberg. I think this is his son in law. I think so. so okay. Uh, and Geffen, the, I mean, these are some of the richest people in, in the history. Do you think of the world. they'll go to prison? No. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> bought <laughs> options to purchase Activision it. shares at $40 each on January 14th. This is a good part. In privately arranged transactions through JP Morgan Chase. So they don't buy the filthy options that like me and Batman buy. Filthy options. <laughs> they, they have like bespoke custom made contracts. Martha Stewart had inside information on oil. So they bought these and Activision Sorry. was trading at 63. So they, they bought in the money options, which maybe makes it less bad. Mm-hmm. It looked like less of a gamble. Did anybody in the world not think that Activision was for sale? I feel like that was very commonly known. So like a lot of these mitigating factors don't make it look as bad. Unless they have texts between these guys that are like, yeah, trust me, pull the trigger. Now's the time, which they probably don't have. So, you know, you know what's really interesting about Activision is, uh, you know, they were, there was a lot of, uh, they were, people were accusing Buffett and Berkshire yep. of front running this thing. Yep. And Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, something that they never do is they talk to the press or address things. They never put press releases out. Their earnings announcements come on Saturdays. The one extremely unusual, maybe first non-quarterly earnings press release that, that Buffett issues is addressing these accusations. I don't think people like being accused of crimes. Uh, well, yeah, yeah I, I think, yeah, I think. I don't, I don't blame them because that looked crazy too. Um, but look, companies get acquired and somebody has to own it. And oftentimes it'll be rich people that own it. And 
ho- hopefully that's as simple as it is here. Yeah, and, and people commit crimes, so maybe maybe it did happen. I don't believe anybody's this stupid. It's so it's so crazy. It's so crazy that uh, maybe it maybe it did happen. I think that's that's their defense. They're yeah. like, we're gonna like, do are you this. kidding me? Do you, do you think I'm that stupid? <laughs> would be no, but that's uh, if I were Diller, that's what I would have my lawyer argue. Yeah. You can't possibly think that I would risk everything I've built over 70 years on an on an options bet right. in in, a, in an insider trade. What? Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can't. Your honor, you can't. Uh, Amazon 20 for one split today and uh, uh, last night and. $10 billion buyback, which is tiny. It's a multi-trillion dollar company. This is like a long time coming. I'm, ev- I'm evolving my thinking on buybacks. I think all the gains held. What's your thinking? I, w- I used to like have this very high-minded Warren Buffett-esque take on buybacks where I was like, it doesn't change the fundamentals and you know, only an idiot would buy a stock because they announced a split. It's just like getting 16 slices out of a pizza pie versus – you know what? That's not true. Like – Tesla did a split. Stock still hasn't come down to earth. Apple. Same with Apple. Yep. I feel like uh, that's Nvidia a move. did a four for one. That's it's up fifty percent. If your stock's then. going down, just split it. Just that'll that'll kickstart. That'll get the bulls involved. <laughs> no, just- but people like different sizes of things that they buy. That's why there's a price club and a convenience store <laughs> right. and everything in between. And give the people what they want. And when you do, you get rewarded. Yep. So and there's a higher margin on on the you know the smaller pieces. So it's not that they know that uh, you know their stock price is going to go up anyway, and they're taking advantage. No, I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's that simple. Uh, it's it's probably a pretty good sign that they're confident the stock's not going to crash anytime soon. What's this B of A? What's this B of A research that you have? So so this was so this was from B of A's Jared Woodard, and he wrote this after the Google twenty for one split. And um, basically, so he had some research showing that, you know, on average, you know, these companies tended to outperform. Companies that are splitting. That are, that are splitting. But I think what he was trying to say is, or I think what he's saying is that, you know, it's not because of the split itself that, you know, these stocks rally. Right. It's because the companies that tend to announce splits have, are, are good companies. Yeah, they have yeah. earnings momentum and all that stuff. So you know why that's not the case this time? It was the case after he wrote this about Google. Google had just rallied furiously, and it was a bull market for tech. Same with Tesla's split. Same with NVIDIA's split. Same with Apple's split. Amazon has been flat for two years. Stock is going nowhere. So it it is a slightly different case than the other tech giants in recent history that announced splits. Um, It doesn't mean you shouldn't be investing in Amazon, but I just think it's like – it's something that's different. Uh, do you have anything to say on, on splits? Bullish? Bullish. Memes are bullish. Uh, all right. We're going to do favorites, and then we're going to take a brief intermission, and then we're going to do another hour and a half. Does that <laughs> sound good to everybody? Uh, Allison, have you brought us a favorite? We did yours? Did we, 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 di- we did mine. We did it already. All right, yeah. Sam, what do you got for us? Um, Afterlife. Have you guys been watching Afterlife? I watched one episode Ooh, of this Ricky and Gervais. made me made me like it's uh, emotional. It's it, it's incredibly depressing. So this is a Ricky Gervais, you know, Ricky Gervais style comedy, and so you know he's the creator of The Office. He is. Yeah, yeah. Yes. He, he British the British British version. version, and they brought it to the U.S. Hmm. He the, was Michael Scott, but his name was uh, what was his name in uh, David Brent. David Brent. And so you know his whole comedy is this sort of like you know Cringe. mundane everyday yeah. stuff that you know life people go through. And so instead of like you know the nine to five office setting, the storyline is about him coping with uh, 
uh, his wife died. High oil prices. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the death but, of his wife. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, like it's, it's heavy. It's, it's pretty depressing, but like, you know, like kind of with the officers, like these sweet moments where like, you know, you, you extract something from this terrible tragedy to, you know, to, to go on. But, um, yeah, so this was the third season. Like you, could, you know, if you don't like, want to watch it, I, you can go right to the third season and start from there. Um, but you does know, it get funnier? It gets. Oh, I mean, no, the, the it's dry British humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the end, like he figures out a way to get closure, you know, with the loss of his wife, and it's like one of the sweetest things that you'll see. And it's like, you know, that's how oh. I'm going to think about loss. All right, I I saw one episode. I'll give it. A, you think you think it's worth giving another shot? I think go go right. Yeah, go go three, right season three. Se- go right to season three. Okay, and then you know just sort of plow through, and it just like gets sweeter and sweeter, and then. You're depressed, and then you're like about to cry because of how good it is. Did you, you like, like season you... three the most? Um, I don't remember. I because I, I actually liked season two I, a lot. I think I I don't really remember one and two. I think it was just so long ago. Why but, Why did you like season two? Was that the one with all the car chases? Just yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was going on in season two? Uh, I just it, the character casual nudity. And, it's and, like Steve Carell pops out of the metaverse. They, um, they dropped a couple of characters in the third season too, just because of COVID-related scheduling kind of stuff. But, uh, but yeah, but I'll give you a very different show for mine. <laughs> Winning time. Did you see it yet? Not yet. I didn't love it. Oh, dude, it's so good. It's one episode. I know it's so good. The first episode was so good. It's about the Lakers in the seventies when the team changes ownership to this guy, Doctor Bus, who he's like a guy that hangs out with Hugh Hefner. Um, I watched it with my son, who's twelve. The opening scene takes place in the Playboy Mansion, and no exaggeration, I think there's 30 naked girls laying on a living room couch, and my son's like very quiet, and I'm like <laughs> waiting for this scene to end so I don't have to turn the channel or throw him out of the room. Yeah. Um, but we got past that, and uh, he now will watch anything I recommend. <laughs> <laughs> John C. Riley is John C. Riley is yeah, one of my right. favorite actors, and he's he's so good. Just just look at his face, and you start laughing. Yeah. So he plays he plays Doctor Bus, and what's he a doctor of? Uh, P- PhD. Bullshit, doctor. It's like phys- physical education. I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. Uh, he doesn't have the same PhD that you have. I don't think. Certainly not the same one that I have. I don't think. Uh, he but he's um he's hilarious. But I think like. Uh, they did a really good job casting Magic Johnson so far, it seems like. I don't know the young actor's name, but he has, like, that star quality. Like, he has the big smile, and uh, you kind of root for him. Actually, I think that I think that this is what severed Adam McKay and Will Ferrell's relationship. Oh. Is that Will Ferrell wanted to play Jerry Buss or was going to. I could see that. And then he gave it to John C. Riley, And they're basically the same person. John C. Riley and is Will that, Ferrell are the same Is that person. why Will Ferrell's running around this Jackie Moon? Yeah, as Jackie Moon at, like, uh, what's it called? Uh, Golden State Games. It's possible. That was really funny, too. Yeah. He's he was hitting threes, though. Yeah. He's the funniest. Um, is he it doesn't gonna... look like Jerry Buss either, but it, it could have been um, it could have been funny with him in it, but I think it's less of a slapstick comedy with John C. Riley in yeah. it, right? Sure. Um, so uh, the, other, the only other one I had was uh, Al Pacino was interviewed about playing The Godfather. Did you realize it's the 50th anniversary of The Godfather? Did you know that Mario Puzo grew up in Merrick? No. Really? Yes. That's true? Yes. From our town? Yes. What bagel store did you go to? Plaza. <laughs> when was this? 1940s? I don't know. No, for real. I don't know when he moved when out. He have but I saw a picture. My dad sent me a picture of his house. It's like a America house. High ranch. Huh. How about that? Uh, Godfather fan? Yeah. You are, right? 
Yeah, and I've been interviewing. Then we released it. I, I'm 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 just a big fan of the mafia. I um, it was a straight same. <laughs> well, it was kind of like the one of the upshots of the pandemic is when New York got weird again. The mafia sort of came out of the woodwork again. They did. Yeah, like I lived the I, Italian mafia. Yeah. Like, I lived near Italy, Italy, and they'd, like, have secret restaurants that'd sneak you in through the trash. I've been interviewing a mob hitman for my new book. Like, Wait, wait. What? What okay. book? What are you writing? Record scratch. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to need another hour. She's an writing, economist walks into a— She's, she's writing an instructional on how to, a how to whack a guy. Yeah. What, 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 well, he said it's much harder now with all the cameras everywhere, and that's one of the reasons the mobs become Do you have any—what's the book about? It's a, exploring our changing relationship with risk. That's why I keep writing about it. Is it a sequel to Brothel or no, just in the same vein? I, it, it's I'm doing the stories again because that was just fun for me and the reader. But the last one was sort of just here's some well understood principles of finance. Here's a fun way to look at them again. This is I'm actually making an argument about why our relationship with risk is changing as a culture and why it's a problem. It's true that it is. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is on purpose. Yeah, no. it and Because it, we don't want it to be easy for a mafia hitman to operate. Well, actually, I make a different argument, which is – in the past, like, the world was pretty risky. You didn't have access to capital, and it was dangerous. So the mob actually, uh, their purpose was actually risk reduction, right? Gave you capital if you needed it, and they p- imposed Dude, some law and order. Are you joking around right now? What? They gave you capital if you needed it and charged you <laughs> so an who interest rate. Well, you know, they, okay, they, they made it available. What's the name okay. of the book? Do we have a name yet? Um, the publisher doesn't like it, but I sold it under Do the Wrong Thing. Oh, I love it. I like I that thing, it. too. Why I'm did fun. the publisher okay. like that? I don't know. Oh, you're right. That's such a great name. If if you need a secondary name, it should be actually the mafia provided access to capital. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be your op-ed that you write in the FT. (laughs) They did. I mean, it was a lot of money. Say what you want about the mafia. They didn't have payday loans then. It was a, you know, this was an important function. Yeah. Do you know about the Sammy the Bull podcast? Yeah. Are you listening? You gotta interview him. You're definitely interviewing him. I'm interviewing John. She's interviewing him. I'm interviewing, he hasn't written back to me, but I'm interviewing John Elite. Have you been oh, to him? he has a podcast too. Yeah, that ha- that's how you pronounce his last name. Elite. Yeah, he's got a big cigar on the cover of his podcast, and, right? And a neck tattoo. Yeah. Yeah, um, but he's wh- fun. He is. He's so charming. Talk about a big smile. Is he? A, is he like a guy that like left the life or? Yeah, he. Um, I don't know who he is. He went to. Well, he turned on John Junior. Gotti. Mm, not then, a good idea. And then, uh, well, and then went to prison for like a bunch of years for killing two people. And now he's a motivational speaker. Yeah, you should maybe do your <laughs> meetings with him on Zoom. I'm just spitballing here. I didn't know you lived in Little Italy. Oh, I, I, I moved to Greenwich Village, but during most of the pandemic, I was right near Little Italy. And the mob was like out. Like you'd see these. You're ma- noticing an uptick in what? You no- you're, you're noticing. What's going on? A lot of men in white tank tops on Mulberry Shame. Street that's drinking racist. beer now. That's mad racist. I'm just going to put. I'm just gonna, <laughs> Allison's being racist, Duncan. Can we edit this part out? All right. Sure. Listen, listen, we're obviously going to be excited for your new book. What are you? You're still in the writing phase. So you're probably yeah. a year away. Yeah. I know how that two. goes. Yeah. Okay. I'm doing academic publisher too, so it's going to take. All some right. While we're on the subject, to wrap up, let's just plug your uh, let's plug your Substack, and then we'll get to Sam's. Uh, you are the known unknowns. I know I mentioned that just now. That's the best way to read your stuff on an ongoing basis, and you link to some of the articles that you contribute elsewhere from there. Yeah. So you can get everything, Allison, from there. Yes. Okay. How how's subs going? What's going on? Everything's it's, good. It's good. I'm, I'm impressed with the Substack people. They're pretty good. They're I mean, good. they're not as efficient as the mafia, but they, they get the job done. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the, the economy is evolving. Fair enough. Wait. And are you cutting all ties with your subscribers in Russia? <laughs> no, because as I said, I, I, I think we're sort of, that's becoming self-defeating. 
Right. We want it, we want them to understand our point of view. We don't want to. Okay. Exactly. Fair enough. Uh, Sam Rowe, I love you. Know I love your. You know I love you. Love your letter. Obviously, Duncan doesn't, which is why we hit the paywall <laughs> when they try to. So I I try to work on him. He doesn't listen. Tell everybody how they could subscribe to your stuff. It's ticker.co. Yep, ticker.co. That's T-K-E-R dot C-O. I've got a sticker. Was here. the I and the C and the E extra money it was, yeah, when you it was made gonna, the domain? It was going to be extra. What's T-K okay. so you did, capitalized? You did, What's you that? did the right thing. So, so what actually happened was I was squatting on a Substack URL um, for, for like two or three years. And so as a placeholder, I didn't want to put like a name of a, a publication because I was still employed. Um, so I just had TK, TK in there. It's a journalism thing. It means, you know, something to come. Ah. Um, and so I was playing around with different names for the newsletter, and all of them sucked. And then I was just looking at this, and I just changed the second TK to ER, and it was great. It didn't start with the, and it was short. Every Substack letter has to start with the? Every, that, yeah. That's Wait, like a, yours doesn't. Think. Hers no. doesn't. See, those but are that the is a convention. Two, yeah, those are the only two good newsletters. It's like that don't the, the something. Yeah. Okay, well, but, the Facebook, right? Like you know, the Facebook. Okay, eventually we. All so you are you are TKER. Yep. TKER. Yep. Okay, guys. Sam reads everything so that you don't have to, and he gives you like here is the most important thing I came across. You're a huge time saver for the audience. That's that's the whole idea. It's the opposite of Michael's blog. <laughs> really, you're like cutting to the chase. You know, it's funny. So the 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 only newsletter that I promise on a regular basis is the Sunday edition, and mm -hmm. then you know some weeks I might send out four issues. Some weeks I'll be completely quiet, um, and the readers seem to be responding positively to that. Dude, you're, doing, you're doing a great job. We appreciate it, Allison. You too, Thank guys. You. We had so much fun hanging out with you, as we always do. So thanks for coming back to the show. We'll have you back soon. I hope. Right. Okay, sure. and in the meantime, thanks for bringing by the – say it for me one more time. Soju. Soju. Uh, you're – I mean, <laughs> I say that to Michael all the time. I do say. <laughs> you right, are right. soju. <laughs> uh, it's delicious. I'm into it. I'm probably going to guzzle this bottle as soon as this guy shuts the cameras off. Uh, what do we want to – we wanted to mention the reviews, right? Nicole yeah. told me that. Yeah, we want people to, to rate and review the Why podcast. aren't they writing reviews for us, do you think? I don't know. Okay, listen up. We just up. have to motivate them. We ask so little of you guys, but we love you, and we give you a lot of show, and the only thing that you can really do to help us is to write a review for us because the algorithms really focus on that. So if you think we're doing something good and you have fun listening to it and you think more people should hear it, write a review, a good review. And what we're going to do to promote that kind of positive uh, feedback is we're going to read our favorite review each week live on the air. We're going to have Allison read it, actually. She's going to call in and do this for us every week. So please write a review. It's very much appreciated. Did I, did I hit all the things? Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's good? Okay. Hey, thanks for listening. Make sure you like and subscribe. Make sure you leave a review. Make sure you check out Sam and Allison's stuff, and we will talk to you soon. You know, if you guys want more electronic reviews, I know some great Russian hackers. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want that kind.